I hope that this message this morning uh, is one that's going to just grow you in your walk with God, one that's going to grow you in your devotion uh, to who He is and how good uh, He is for you uh, in your life. Uh, but before we get uh, dive into our text this morning, I just want to ask, when was the last time that you had a week that kind of got away from you? Has that ever happened to you, right? You get a week uh, that kind of gets away from you. That was kind of uh, my week this week. Like, I vaguely remember worshiping, like, alongside you guys uh, last Sunday. And uh, here we are now. And so I assume uh, that things happened uh, in between now and last week. And, and that's really rare for me uh, to kind of not remember all that happened in my week because I'm a very organized guy. I mean, I use Evernote for pretty much everything, like every meeting I've ever taken, I have an Evernote doc for that meeting, right? For every week, I have a to-do list that I go down, but this week just kind of flew by, and I don't know why that is. I really only remember two things about my week. One was we had our summer deep dive on Wednesday, which was awesome, which was just totally cool. Uh, So I remember that because that was really awesome. And then I remember yesterday I watched nine episodes of Seinfeld reruns. And so those are really the only two things I remember doing there during this week. And I assume that I wrote this sermon at some point because I got notes in front of me, but this week flew by. And I was wondering like, why does this happen to us from time to time? I think there's a few reasons for that. One is we're not intentional uh, about what we want to do and what we want to accomplish. And so our week just kind of happens. We go on autopilot. Maybe we get distracted by things uh, like Seinfeld episodes and things like that, right? We just get distracted uh, from the things that we need to do. Maybe we have a lack of energy our motivation to accomplish uh, what we want to accomplish that week. We're just very low energy or just low motivation that week. Uh, But this isn't something that's unique to us. In fact, people, I think, for all time have kind of struggled with living life with intentionality. And I can prove that uh, because there's this phrase called carpe diem. You ever heard of this phrase before, carpe diem? We usually translate that phrase, seize the day. But it's actually, I was looking it up, its original meaning is really pluck the day like a ripe fruit, right? So you're kind of plucking, seeing opportunity and seizing it in the moment. And this came about probably in first century BC by a Roman poet. He coined this phrase. And so we don't usually say carpe diem anymore. We say YOLO now, right? And so now maybe a thousand years or 2,000 years from now, people are going to look up our text and our works and they see YOLO, trying to figure out what that means, right? But there's always been this idea that life is short Tomorrow isn't promised, and we're called to make the most of the time that we have. And yet it's so hard to do that. And as we continue on in our series called Everything, which is about a posture of worship, living lives as worshipers, I cannot think of anything more important than living a life that honors God and that worships Him, right? That reflects His glory and His goodness, I've entitled my sermon this morning, Seize Your 167 Hours. And uh, the the sharp cookies in here will understand what 167 hours means, but I'll get to that in a second for those of us who are a little slower. But this morning we're talking about worship. And we talked last week about how worship is a response to God's goodness. And I'm saying this week that worship is the greatest activity that you can engage in in your life. 
There's a lot of different terms for worship in the Bible. We use a lot of different terms, maybe like glorify God, praise God, honor God, fear God. The Westminster Catechism, which is kind of a, a document that, that a lot of churches kind of go by for their faith and doctrine, says that the greatest, act, or actually it says the chief end of man is to worship God and enjoy Him forever. You were made for worship. You were created for worship. And at some point along the way, all of us wander away from that God-given purpose and design for our lives. And so God sent Christ to come into the world to create a new group of worshipers set on fire by God's goodness. So this morning, if you're a Jesus follower, if you're a God follower, you're also a God worshiper by definition. You're a God worshiper by definition. And that's a good thing for us, right? Because when we worship God, He gets the glory, but we get the goodness, right? We get the goodness of the Lord. A.W. Tozer is a, uh, a well-known theologian. He said this, he said, any man or woman on this earth who was bored and turned off by worship is not ready for heaven. <laughs> that's deep. <laughs> any man or woman on this earth who is, not, who is turned off by worship, is not ready for heaven. And this tells us something about who we are and what we're created to do. This morning I'm talking about worship, but I want to talk about worship not just for this hour, but for the other 167 hours that there are in each week. And that's why I've entitled my sermon, Seize Your 167 Hours. Because a lot of times when we think of worship, we think it's synonymous with what happens in here. Right? Singing, lifting up our hands and voices to the Lord, that is worship. But what I want to try to argue today is that's only one channel of worship. There's a lot of other channels of worship. And some of us get stuck on this one channel of worship, and we never change the channel. And if that's you this morning, that's, that's okay, but we're going to kind of work through this. But what I'm going to try to argue is, if we are called to worship, if we are worshipers, that's who we are, then worship has to be something beyond this hour, because you've got six other days. If God intends for all of your life to be worship, then why would he limit worship to one hour of one day of the week? In fact, I tried to calculate it out. This is 0.05% of the time that you have during your week. You spend more time at work than you do in here. You spend more time with your family than you do in here, more time at home than you do in here. And so there has to be a connection between what you do, how you do it, and worshiping the Lord. And that's what we're going to jump into today. We don't want to compartmentalize worship this morning. I love how Pastor John talked last week about having a worship culture. That's such a good phrase, a worship culture. We want this church to have a worship culture where we go all out for Jesus Christ. But that worship culture has to extend beyond just this room. We want to have a worship culture in our lives. And it's so good when we do that, because when you do that, when you live your life to honor the Lord, that means that you come in on Sunday, not cold, but hot, right? You're ready to worship with the church. So let's talk about how we get there this morning. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Uh, I love this verse. We just got two verses we're going to dive into this morning, and, and we'll jump into the first one. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, 
to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So let's recap what worship is this morning. Pastor John talked a little bit or a lot about this last week. Worship is a response to who God is and what he's done. Worship is a response to who God is and what he's done. I want you to notice here at the very beginning what the Apostle Paul, the writer of this book, says. He says, therefore, I appeal to you by what? The mercies of God. I appeal to you by the mercies of God. Maybe your Bible translation says it a little bit different. Maybe it says, in full view of God's mercy. Because of God's great mercy. I love one translation says, what should be our proper response to God's marvelous acts in our life? I went to the Greek. I'm not a big Greek guy, but you know the New Testament was originally written mostly in Greek. And I was looking up this word, uh, this idea of, of mercy. And in the Greek, it actually means the visceral compassion of God. Visceral. That's not a word that you hear that often. But there's this idea that it's a, a very deep-seated, passionate compassion that God has for us. This is God's mercy toward us. It is deep powerful, visceral. So what Paul is saying, he's saying live your life, all of your life, not just Sunday, in full view, full remembrance, full recognition of how good God is to you all the time. And yet how often do we live our everyday lives with the problems of our life, with the annoyances of our day, at the front of our minds— and the mercies of God in the back of our minds. And what Paul is saying is saying, no, 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 I want you to live your life with the mercies of God at the front of your mind, always in front of you, in full view. And I think Paul is going to say that for multiple reasons, but one of the main reasons he's going to do that is because he's about to command you to do something. And so Paul wants to make sure that you understand that the power of what he's telling you to do is greater than the weight of what he's telling you to do. Paul wants to make you or help you understand that the reason for the command must outweigh the command. And we're going to get into what the command is. But first, I want to talk a little bit about the book of Romans. If you've never read the book of Romans, uh, what Paul did in the first 11 chapters of Romans, right? Because we're jumping in uh, toward the end of the book. But what Paul did for 11 chapters in Romans was diving into the mercies of God. Right? So Paul spends 11 chapters talking about what God has done for us. And then in the last five chapters of the book, he talks about what we do for God, in a sense. Right? Eleven chapters, what God did for us. Five chapters, what we do for him. And I feel like that tells us something. That tells us how we should approach worship. Worship is a response to God. And so it makes sense that Paul's got to spend a lot of time talking about what God has done for us. So let me just recap a little bit the book of Romans. Chapters 1 and 2 talks about how God's wrath was on us, right? God's wrath was on us because of our unrighteousness, but is no longer on us because of Jesus's righteousness. And I know that you hear this a lot. If you've been in church, you've heard this a lot, and we get used to this. But imagine if God took that away. We're so worried about the things of life, about the food we're going to eat and the clothes we're going to wear, all these different things, because I feel like we get used to the fact that God has forgiven us. But what if God pulled back that forgiveness? Your life would crumble. 
So Paul wants to remind you of this. Chapters 3 through 5, Paul says, Faith, not works, brings peace with God. You don't have to do anything to please him. It's only faith in what he's done for you. Chapter 6 and 7, Christ has broken the power of sin over your lives, and you can live for him, live for righteousness. He gives you that power to do that. Romans chapter 8, which is the greatest chapter in the Bible, I'm sure that you could take that chapter out, give it to anyone, and they would understand what God has done for us. It's the greatest chapter, I believe, in the Bible. But in that chapter, it talks about how we are all children of God and co-heirs with Christ. We will live alongside Him forever in a kingdom that does not end. And then chapters 9 through 11 talks about how God works out His great plans so that not only the Jews— but you and I can enter into the kingdom of God. How great are the mercies of God over us. So what Paul is trying to say is allow this visceral love of God to so seep into your soul, into your mind, into your thoughts, that it truly does become a natural response of worship. I'm convinced that the phrase, because God has done this for me, is 10,000 times better than I should do this for God, right? Because God has done this for me, I will live for him, as opposed to, I know I should do this for God. That's a terrible, motivating question. If that's how you live your life, I I think it's going to be very difficult for you. All right, back to our verse. So it says, in view of the mercies of God, do what? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And that brings me to my first point. Worship is more than Sunday. Worship is all of life. Worship is more than just Sunday. Worship is all of life. And I love this phrase that Paul uses. He says, offer your bodies, present your body as a what? Living sacrifice. Kind of an oxymoron, right? That's a very... Uh, literal, a very uh, visual type phrase that Paul gives to us, a living sacrifice. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, if you've read in the Old Testament, you know that sacrifices was one of the ways that people worshiped God, right? They would do animal sacrifices before the Lord, right? They would go to the temple, they would bring an animal sacrifice, and that was their spiritual act of worship. So in the Old Testament— There's stories of kings bringing over 100,000 animals to be sacrificed on the altar. That's impressive and a little terrifying, I think. But in the New Testament, Jesus is going to do something really, really special. Jesus is going to say a time is coming where worship is not located in a temple. It's located in your heart. Worship is not located primarily by animal sacrifice in a temple. Worship is located in your heart. He says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you, and instead of going to temple, you're going to be the temple. All right, that's deep. You've got to get that. You are the temple of the Lord, according to the New Testament. All right, so worship has moved primarily from being this place where we do the ceremonial act to living a life that honors God through personal spiritual renewal. In the Old Testament, hundreds of thousands of animals were sacrificed, but in the New Testament, hundreds of thousands of God's people sacrificed their dreams and their hopes and their lives at the altar of what God ultimately wants for them and what's good for them. It makes sense, right? 
point of sacrifice is to worship. And Paul says you, you're, you are a sacrifice in a sense. Your life is to be laid down for him. And that's amazing for worshipers. That's amazing for worshipers. Are you a worshiper of God this morning? If you are, then it's amazing that you don't have to worship him only in this hour. Right? If you only had one hour to worship because you had to come to White Oak Baptist Church or New Day Church to worship him, then you would only be able to do that one day a week for a few hours during the week. That'd be a terrible existence. But because you're a worshiper of God, you can worship him no matter where you're at. So what Jesus has done is he's unshackled worship from time and place and activity to an attitude of the heart. You are freed to worship him whenever and wherever you want to. You're not shackled by White Oak service times. This place is not the temple. You are the temple. When you leave, you pack up your temple and you go. The Bible says that you are priests serving the living God wherever you go. You worship him in full view of the world and of your family. Never again will you have to say, I can't wait to worship God. You always have the opportunity. You know, I think previous generations always had this problem where they thought, like, the building was the church. You know how they say, like, the church is not the building, it's the people, right? And we get that, I think, in our generation because we're kind of swinging over the pendulum away from the previous generation, which thought, oh, I go to church, right? But now we say, no, you don't go to church. You are the church, right? We are the church, the family of God, not the building. But what I think our generation has to get in our, in our minds is that worship is not an event, it's a lifestyle. Worship is not an event. It's a lifestyle. And I think so often we think that God kind of only cares about what we do here in this hour. We put Sunday as really, really important when it comes to God. We give God our Sunday morning, but the rest of the week we live for ourselves. And I think that's what Paul is trying to argue against here. He says, you are a living sacrifice no matter where you go. Worship is not an event. It's a lifestyle. It's more than Sunday It's Monday as well. Monday is worship. Tuesday is worship. Every day of the week becomes an opportunity to worship. Worship is all of life. Number two, worship is more than singing. Worship is all that you do. And we're going to talk here in a moment, verse 2, about how we worship God in our everyday life. Because I think we need to kind of walk that through. But before we get there, I think it's important to get this misconception out of the way. And I want to say this at the very bat, my, my parenthetical thought. I'm not downplaying singing. We're going to talk about singing a lot in the weeks to come and how we come together and worship the Lord as the people of God. So I'm not downplaying that at all. But what I want to say this morning is that music is not a formula for getting closer to God. Music doesn't bring you closer to God. Jesus already brought you close to God. You're already close to him. No matter how you feel, no matter how your week was, Jesus has brought you near to God. In fact, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to live inside of you. So you say, I don't feel near to God. Just look down. He's inside of you. That's what the Bible says. We are temples of the Holy Spirit. So I'm not here to downplay music at all. But music is not a formula. Music is wonderful. Singing is unique. And this is an awesome experience. I'm glad God commands it. But music and singing is only one channel of worship. 
a great channel, an amazing channel, but it's only one channel. Maybe you're in here this morning and you say, man, I, I need others to bring me close to God. Right? I, I don't feel close to God unless someone's preaching over me, unless I'm singing, unless I'm with other people. If that's you this morning, I think God desires for you not to be a second-hand worshiper, but to experience God firsthand. Right? God doesn't want you to live vicariously through me or me through you. God wants you to experience his goodness for yourself. To worship him, not just on Sunday, but all throughout the week. And to engage him and to experience him, not just in a group of people, but also one-on-one. But I think we feel that way sometimes. And, I, and I'm so glad that God allows us to experience him one-on-one. Because if we needed Lindsay to follow us around with an acoustic guitar, <laughs> you know, there's just no way that would work. As awesome as that would be, personally speaking, if Lindsay could just pop up at work and she's like, you know, singing songs or whatever. But that's not the way it works, right? And I love how Pastor John talked about last week that we don't follow our feelings. We follow the truth of the Lord. And so the truth of the Lord is that you are near to God because Jesus has brought you near to him. Jesus has brought you near. And what I've found is when I begin to believe the truths of God, when I look at my feelings and say, this this is kind of weird, when I put my feelings behind me, they generally follow and catch up. Right? They generally follow and catch up as I believe the truth of God. Right? So you don't need other people to bring you close to God. He's your God. He's your King. He saved you. He's your Savior. He speaks to you through his word. He makes you alive through his spirit. You don't need anyone else. You're not a second-hander. You are a first-hander when it comes to worship. So this morning, I want you to really believe kind of these two truths in tension. One, worship is not just about Sunday. It's all of life. And worship is not just about singing. It's all that you do. Right? Worship isn't necessarily an activity it's an attitude of the heart. And this is kind of a kind of parathetical thought. It's not even really in my notes. I just want to bring it up. You actually never see worship. And this is like my theological mind thinking. So bear with me. If you're not an abstract person, you can check out for a second. But worship is not something that you can see. Right? Because worship happens here. Worship happens when the eyes of my heart, to use a symbolic phrase, when my inner being recognizes and sees how good God is. That's where worship happens, in here. Singing is what happens as a result of that, right? I see the goodness of God in my heart. Singing is an overflow of what's happening in here. Or we're going to talk about some other ways that happens when there's this overflow. It's not always singing, but, but worship always happens on the inside. It cannot be seen. When you see a people uh, singing to the Lord, you're seeing the result of worship, not necessarily worship itself, right? Worship is, happens on the inside. And I think we have to understand that if we're going to be people who worship God in all of life. All right, so how do we do this? Uh, the INTJs and ENTJs in here want to get a framework for how you do this this morning. So we're going to dive into that, uh, get into kind of the schematic of what it looks like. So how do we do this? Let's go to chapter, or verse 2 here uh, this morning, Romans 12, verse 2. It says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And so I think what Paul is trying to do here is give like practical legs to this very spiritual concept 
of worship here. And so, so here's kind of the third point this morning. Uh, you worship by being daily transformed, not conformed. Right? I love how the English uh, version of the text kind of pits these two together. There's conformity to the world and transformation by God through the renewal of our minds. Right? So what Paul is saying is there's two different ways that you can pattern your life. One is you can pattern your life after the world, which the Bible calls conformity to the ways of the world, the opinions of the world, what they think about life and marriage and conflict and all these different things, what they think about life and death. You can pattern your life after that. Or you can allow your life and your mind to be transformed by the truth of God. Right? So I think you honor God when you stop caring about what the world thinks about him and about the scriptures. I love how, um, I think it's the message uh, translation, our version of the Bible puts it this way. It says, don't become so well adjusted to your culture. And your culture can be living in America. It can be your friend group. It can be your workplace environment. Don't get so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Right? Don't go on autopilot when it comes to thinking about uh, the issues of life. Instead, fix your attention on God. All right, so you worship God by not being conformed, and that word in the Greek actually uh, it comes from the word, or we get the word schematic uh, out of this particular word. So there's a framework for the way that the world thinks, what they value, money, success, stuff, whatever it is. There's a framework for how they value. There's a framework for how they go about things, right? It's a very self-centered world, all those things. And the Bible says, don't follow after that schematic, that pattern of the world. That's one way that you worship the Lord. And then on the positive side of that, that's what you don't do. On the positive side, it says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Right? And so this is, again, a very spiritual concept of something that's happening inside of you, but it's also very practical. Essentially what's happening here is we allow our attitude, allow our opinions, allow our lifestyle, allow what we say to be shaped by the truth of God through the power of the Holy Spirit in us. So essentially what Paul is saying is you need a total reformation of the way that you think. Right? You need a total reformation of what you value, of the way that you approach your marriage and your parenting and your coworkers. You need to align this, be transformed by the truth of God as you allow it to seep into and soak into your life. God's honored when we sing songs, but I think that God is also honored more when our life is a song that reflects him. Right? When our life is a song that honors him. He's honored when we praise him with our lips, but he's also honored when our lives and our hearts and our attitudes and our actions and our speech are reflective of Christ and what he desires for the world, which is love and peace, forgiveness and hope. Worship is more than Sunday, it's all of life. Worship is more than singing, it's all that you do. And when you do this, uh, you find that you really begin to impact the people around you. John Piper is a uh, well-known pastor, a theologian. This is what he says. I love this. He says, Nothing makes God more supreme and more central than when a people are utterly persuaded that nothing— not money, not prestige, or leisure, or family, or job, or health, or sports, or toys, or friends. Nothing is going to bring satisfaction to their aching hearts besides God. 
This conviction breeds a people who go hard after God on Sunday morning and every day of the week. Right? And so there's this sense in which we're all in on Jesus, all in on hoping on him. We trust in no other thing. This is a worship. This is a spiritual act of worship to the Lord. So how do we do that? Very practically, I want to talk about some everyday expressions of worship. And I love that phrase, an expression of worship, right? Because when you think about an expression, like you smile or you frown or whatever it is, that's something that, that, that comes from the inside and it, then it's shown on your face, right? So expressions of worship are things that begin on the inside, but they live out in our practical bodies, everyday life. And the first one of those, I'm sure you could guess it, is personal devotions, prayer, and scripture, When Paul says that we must be renewed, that we must renew our mind through the Spirit, really what he's saying is we have to begin to transform the way we think, and the way that we do that is through prayer and through the Word of God, right? Prayer and the Bible set on fire uh, the Spirit, this renewal of worship that happens within us. So personal devotions, prayer, and Scripture— what happens here on Sunday morning is not enough to set your fire on, 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 you know, set your heart on fire for the Lord, right? You need more than that. You need uh, to be doing this during the week to continue to set yourself uh, on fire for the Lord. Number two, uh, this is one that we don't often think about in terms of worship, is obedience. Obedience is an act of worship. King David says in the Psalm, Psalm 119, he says, Just tell me what to do, and I will do it, Lord. As long as I live, I will obey you wholeheartedly. So we worship God when we obey him, even when we don't understand. Right? So when, during the week, when God's doing things, when we feel the promptings of the Holy Spirit in our heart, and we obey those promptings, even when we don't understand, that's an act of worship that's pleasing to the Lord. Number three, this is a hard one. Uh, suffering well is an act of worship. You know, Paul doesn't call you a sacrifice for no reason, right? Sacrifice means that there's going to be some suffering that comes with being obedient and with worshiping the Lord. So when we we suffer well, when we go through trials in life and we say, you know what, my marriage is hard right now, my job is hard right now, Uh, I'm not feeling it right now, but I trust the Lord, that's an act of worship. I love how Job says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's, a, that's an act of worship that Job is engaging in that moment. So we're called to suffer well. Number four, uh, gratitude and thankfulness. Nothing kills the vibe of personal worship in your heart than feeling like you deserve more than you have. We deserve nothing. All that God gives us is a gift. And so when we live our life with an attitude that God owes me nothing, God doesn't owe me a great job, God doesn't owe me a a, a great and easy marriage or or, or kids who obey me all the time, right? God doesn't owe me those things. And when you have that heart, not only does it kind of liberate you a little bit because you don't have all these expectations all the time, but it also honors and glorifies God. Thankfulness is worship because we realize that life and breath and our family, everything is a gift. I like this one, number five, sleep. 
Sleep can be an act of worship. And let me tell you why. Psalm, I believe, 127 says that we can sleep knowing that the Lord provides for us even in our sleep. So there's this sense in which when I sleep, you can do it in such a way that honors the Lord by saying, you know what, God, I know not everything is done today. I know there's more to be done, but I trust you and therefore I rest because I know ultimately you take care of me. Right? And that's awesome. In the same way that you get 167 hours to worship during the week, you know you sleep for about a third of your life. So I had this thought one time that if you sleep in such a way that honors the Lord, you actually get to worship Him for 20 additional years of your life. 20 years of more worship of the Lord when we go to Him, maybe in prayer before we sleep and say, God, thank you for the day you've given me. Thank you for the rest you're about to give me. Sleep to the glory of God. Number six, serving others is a way to worship. Uh, Jesus says you will prove to be my disciple, a Jesus worshiper, uh, by your love for others. So using your mouth and your words in such a way to build others up and not tear them down is your spiritual act of worship. And then the last one is living on purpose. Living in light of eternity. We're going to be worshiping God forever. And like I said at the beginning, if that scares you or if that bores you a little bit, then I, I, I think you need to expand your understanding of what worship is. And so if we're going to worship God for all eternity, then living our life in light of that is an act of worship. We live our lives believing that life is short, eternity is long, and we have a mission while we're here on this earth to glorify God and bring others into his kingdom. We can have lifestyle worship by living on purpose. And so uh, those up here, those, those are not a full breadth of all the things that we can do when it comes to worship. Those are just a few expressions of worship. But I wanna, what I want to get across this morning is that worship can happen no matter what environment you're in. Worship can happen at work. Worship can happen in your parenting, in your marriage. Worship happens when we see God for who he truly is, and then we respond according to that truth. Right? When I respond with forgiveness and kindness toward my spouse when she wrongs me, I'm remembering what Christ did on the cross. I'm saying, Christ forgave me. I can forgive her. Right? And so we, we worship God through all these different expressions, and it becomes something that's very beautiful and pleasing to him. So to draw to a close this morning, let's look at the last part of our verse, and let's just camp out here uh, just for a little while. So it says, be not, do, do not be conformed uh, to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So I think what Paul is saying, uh, in the same way that I'm saying, worship is not an event, it's a lifestyle— what he's saying is as you continue this pattern of rejecting the world, rejecting the attitudes and opinions of the people around you who aren't centered on the gospel, as you do that, and as you begin to allow the truth of God to seep more and more in your life, not just on Sundays, but every day of the week, as you do that, you begin to produce in you a spirit-empowered life that pleases God, that becomes a fragrant aroma. In essence, a life of worship. 
this morning, my, my really call to action is seize your 167 hours. Don't go on autopilot this week. Don't forget the reason that you were created. The worship service doesn't end at 12. It never ends. Worship never ends for the Christian. You have 167 hours every week, and every week it resets. And if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus and you're peering into it, you might be thinking, man, that's kind of radical. Yes, it's radical. But we believe that Jesus is so worth it. If you're a Christian in here this morning, I just got a simple question for you. Isn't he everything for you? Isn't he everything? He made you. He saved you. He sustains you. He gives you breath. Jesus is everything. I don't know about you, but there was a point in my life where I was kind of half in on Jesus and half in on the world. And I remember there a point where the Holy Spirit said, you've got to choose. And I went all in on Jesus. And if you know me well, you know my life is not perfect. But everything I do, it's, it's always for Jesus none of this is true, the Bible isn't real, whatever it is, all in on Jesus. I exhort you to live a life full of worship, and when you do that, you'll have no regrets. You will never regret any millisecond you give to honoring Christ, with your mouth, with your words, with your life, with your job, with your family. It'll all be worth it in this life and in the one to come. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, um, I love that you accept our imperfect worship. I love how you accept us not on the basis of our works, but on what you've done. I just pray, Lord, that even as Paul did in the book of Romans, that we would spend twice as much time thinking about what you have done for us and what you're doing for us than what we do for you, Lord. You're so good. And and I know I did such a, in many ways, a terrible job of trying to explain your goodness, Lord, but every person's gonna have that problem. And so I just pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you might bring into the hearts of every person here just a glimpse of how good you are. That that might just ignite their heart and their soul to go all in on Jesus. Now and for the rest of our lives, no matter what happens, good or bad, may we worship you with all that we are, with all that we am. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name.